If you'll open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, we have made our way down to verse 16. So this morning we're going to give our attention to at least verses 16 and 17. Would you pray with me first? Our Father, we come to you this morning. We have our Bibles opened and we are desiring that you would speak to us from your word. Lord, help us to have the same desire for ourselves that Paul had for these Ephesian Christians. That you, our Father in heaven, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That you would open the eyes of our understanding unto the glory and praise of your Son, we pray and ask it. Amen. So the first 14 verses of Ephesians surely must have overwhelmed these Gentile Ephesian new believers. They overwhelm us all, don't they? When we read them and study them. We understand from the book of Acts when Paul made his way into Ephesians that it was a city, a large city that was entrenched in paganism, pagan worship. One of the seven wonders of the world resided in Ephesus being the temple of the fertility goddess Artemis. And so we can imagine what type of culture these Ephesian Christians found themselves living in. Everywhere they turned now as believers in Christ, they ran into that which once defined them and once characterized them. Let me remind you of something that Paul says about them that we'll get to in future weeks in the second chapter in the 11th verse. Listen to how he describes these pagans who have come to faith in Christ. He says, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Obviously, it's right for us to see this as a description for the Ephesians who would in time come to Christ. But I want you to take these characteristics and apply them to every unbeliever you know. Regardless of their age, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of what part of the world that they live in, When Paul says that they are without Christ and have no hope and are without God in the world, that's a definition of every person who who has not by faith come to the Lord Jesus Christ. That should spur on our evangelistic zeal, shouldn't it? That should drive us to preach the gospel given every opportunity. So let's go back to these verses that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to, I'm going to read verse 15 down through 
19 or 20. And reminding you that the therefore of verse 15 might very well be the weightiest therefore in all of Scripture. Because it's pointing back to these first 14 verses that describe so gloriously the activity of the Trinity in our salvation. And Paul said, we looked at last week, he said, I heard, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. And in time, we'll pick up there where I just left off. These Ephesian Christians who were once without Christ, without hope, and without God in the world have been saved out of all of that. God in Christ overcame every obstacle to their salvation. Just like he did yours. Like he has mine. If we were to go back and make a listing of everything that stood in the way of our coming to faith in Christ, that list would grow pretty lengthy, wouldn't it? At the top of that list would certainly be our own sin. Our own love for sin. But then there may be any other Dozens or hundreds of of things that we could list that stood in the way. But yet God in Christ overcame every one of those. And those who put faith and trust in Christ sit here this morning as having been made objects of his mercy. No longer being objects of his wrath. So these Ephesian Christians are not so unlike us. They lived in great darkness. They were steeped in false religion. They were steeped in pagan practices. But yet here comes this little insignificant man, Paul. And he began to preach to them. And the Lord took that word of the gospel and he used it mightily in their life. And then a decade or so later, scholars number this differently, whether it's five to ten years after Paul was in Ephesus, after he had last seen them, that now he is imprisoned. He's writing this letter to them. And it's helpful to think that the oldest, in, the oldest in the faith, the most mature Christian among them, would have only been a believer about a decade or less. And yet Paul unloads on them the truth of the first 14 verses. He just says, here it is. How do you suppose that they understood it? If all we had of the book of Ephesians was the first 14 verses, we would be forever indebted to God for what he has made known. But then Paul moves, after hearing of their faith and love, he moves to praying for them that they would really understand what he's already told them. That what he has already told them would really gain an entrance into their heart and into their mind. I think two things could be said here as we think about the Ephesian Christians and even ourselves. 
Our greatest need prior to conversion, prior to salvation, is to have the Spirit of God work upon us. And what I mean by that, our greatest need is to have the Spirit of God come and regenerate us. Give us a new heart. Take out the old stony heart and give us a heart of flesh. But after that, after salvation has come, we still stand in great need. And our great need after salvation is to have the Spirit of God work within us. To teach us. To grow us in the faith. We could say it another way. Before we can be saved, the Spirit must awaken us from our spiritual sleep of death. This is called regeneration. But before we can fully appreciate our salvation and realize how greatly the triune God has worked on our behalf, the Spirit must come alongside of us and help us through illumination. That's what Paul prays. Lord, would you open the eyes of their understanding? Would you enlighten them and let them see? So on both counts, whether it is prior to conversion or after Conversion, we are taught in this letter and really in the scriptures throughout that the deepest longing and the greatest needs of humanity before or after salvation are spiritual, not physical. Obviously, we have great physical needs. We need food. We need water. We need air to breathe. We need all of these things. But our greatest need before and after conversion Remains in the spiritual realm. We need the Spirit of God to work upon us, and we need the Spirit of God to work within us. It's important to note before we begin with these verses that Paul is not here praying for their salvation. He said, verse 15 and 16, I've already heard of your faith in Christ. I've already heard of your love for all the saints. And way back in verse 1, he addressed them as saints. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So this prayer that he prays in the last half of chapter 1 has to do with their sanctification. With their growth in holiness. With their being more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And we learn something as we read this second half of Ephesians 1. Sanctification in the life of a believer is first inward or doctrinal. It's not outward or practical, first of all. Certainly it works itself into that. This is the order of the epistles, right? Even this one we're studying, the first three chapters, Paul Lays out doctrine. He says these are the right things to believe about your salvation. These are the right things to believe about God. These are the right things to believe about Jesus. These are the right things to believe about the Spirit. How the Spirit has applied what Christ has done. Which was the Father's overall plan. These are the things to believe. And then beginning in the fourth chapter. He tells them now this is how you should live in light of these things. The ordering there is important. This is where we begin when we are relating to someone else. This is where the Spirit of God began with us. Doctrine first. And then the application of it. 
You just think of this for an example. If we were to take a, think of yourself and think of a relationship that you may have with a new or a recently professed believer. If we begin to exhort them, first of all, to look and act, whatever that means, but to look and act like a Christian without first teaching them the truth of salvation, we would say we possibly have gotten the cart before the horse, right? Actions are based upon doctrine. Not doing certain things or doing certain things in the Christian life should always be based upon some conviction of yours in the the Scriptures. The Lord using your conscience. The Lord using the truth of Scripture to renew your mind. To give you new thoughts after his own heart. Go back to that illustration. And if we, if someone were have to acted towards us. And not taught us anything. And just said do this. Don't do that. Dress like this. Don't dress like that. Do these types of things in your family. Don't do these types of things. Let your children do this. But don't let your children do that. If that's all that we have had. And there was no truth behind it. To lead us in the way of holiness and sanctification, then at best, at best, what that results in is a frustrated, immature believer. At worst, it ends in legalism that is blind to great gospel, even doctrinal truth. Doctrine precedes. The application of it. That's the order of this first chapter. The doctrine is in the first 14 verses. Paul's prayer for the application of it. Comes in the second part of the chapter. It's always dangerous to say. If it looks right. It must be right. That's pragmatism. It's better to say. When it is right. Then it will look right. When the heart is right, then it will work itself out into everyday life in a right way. And sadly, there are far too many professed believers who are basing their eternities on the way they look and act rather than on Jesus Christ. There are far too many people who are basing their eternities based upon do's and don'ts rather than what Christ has done for them. There's little to no doctrine and a lot of rules. With this little bit of introduction, look with me at the way Paul addresses this prayer or to whom he addresses this prayer to. And in the beginning of his petition, all of Paul's prayers in his epistles are worth our careful study. Some commentators call them the high watermark of his epistles. We learn so much of how to pray for ourselves, how to pray for one another, what we really stand in need of when we read his prayers, when we study them. And so when we get to verse 16, after Paul mentions his reasoning for praying, he's heard of their faith, he's heard of their love, He tells them he is not ceasing to give thanks and mentioning them in his prayers. Notice verse 17. 
and pausing here, I think, is necessary. We may want to hurry on and get to the, the weightier matters of what did Paul pray for these newly converted pagans? What do we need to know about the apostle praying for them? But we need to see that he begins with the weightiest matter. Notice the way he addresses God in verse 17. When he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. This is the God to whom he is praying. How much we can learn from the way Paul addresses him. We we might say, and probably wouldn't be wrong, that Paul was the most knowledgeable Christian of all time. I mean, the Lord did use him mightily and greatly, even though he was humbled through it all. But notice that even with all of that, he does not just rush into prayer before he addresses exactly and obviously he wants the Ephesians and us to know who this prayer is directed to. Only the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory could answer a prayer like Paul is about to pray. He is the only one that can give these requests. He is the only one that can bring them to be a reality in the life of the people to whom, for whom Paul prays. Paul is petitioning the one who in eternity past elected these to salvation. Now he is praying that in time, in real time, that he would grow these same up in the faith. He calls him first the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. After he has detailed for them what Christ has done through the shedding of his blood, back in verse 7, he he. As he begins to pray, he wants them to know in us that he is directing this prayer to this God who has authored this plan of salvation and who so greatly desires not only their salvation but their sanctification. He also calls him the Father of glory, or more literally, the Father of glories, plural. I think this points to the fact that he is the originator of glory. He is the one who dispenses glory. He is altogether glorious when we see him described on the pages of scripture. He is completely and utterly holy without spot, completely pure, dwelling in inapproachable light. This is the one to whom Paul is praying. And notice that Paul says next that he may give to you. If you and I are to receive any spiritual blessing, any spiritual thing at all, it will be and only be because God has given it. Only because he is a God of grace and mercy. James understood this. In his first chapter, six verse sixteen, he says, "Do not deceive. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, 
and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Aren't you thankful that this omnipotent, omniscient God gives gifts? He does not keep things to himself. He does not hoard all spiritual truth and all of his riches. Isn't this the same God that Paul says in verse 3? Blessed be this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he unpacks what all of those spiritual blessings are. And we spent a considerable amount of time in those first few verses of Those first 14 verses of this chapter. It's right that we pray for great things. But we must first realize that we're praying to the great God of heaven and earth. What Paul is asking in this petition are no small things. But he's asking them. Of our of the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. You see what reverence is there? Even Jesus taught us in response to his disciples asking how to pray. We pray to our Father who is in heaven. Paul was reverencing and which leads to humility. When we realize first and foremost that we are praying to this all gracious gift giving God, then our prayer from the very beginning is one that is clothed in humility. Are we asking great things? Yes, but we're not demanding. Are we seeking great things? Yes. Can we expect them? Yes. From a God who has already given every spiritual blessing, we can expect great things. When we approach God this way, it is indeed an approaching the throne of grace. Where God is enthroned, where he is the high and holy and lofty one. Where there is no entrance except for the blood that Christ has shed and his entrance behind the veil. God help us and forgive our flippant attitudes when we come to prayer. So often we rush right in. Lord, I need, I need, I need, and then I want, I want. Not even having paused long enough in reverence and humility to address him as he deserves. You know, we can apply this to everyday life, to everyday relationships. If we were to meet some high-ranking government official, I don't know that we would just run right in and not even acknowledge who he is or his position or his authority or her authority, whomever it may be, and just begin to run through a list of needs and wants. This is what Paul does not do. 
He's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the one who gives good gifts to his children. What is the first thing that he prays? How does he pray? What is the first thing that he prays for? Remember, Paul is not just writing based upon his own authority or experience. The Spirit of God is inspiring him. So it's helpful and insightful to see what is the first thing that the Spirit leads him to pray for fairly new converts who are living in the most severe place of paganism and persecution. Notice what he says. That the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He asks first for them for the spirit of wisdom. Now this is one of two things. He's either referencing here an attitude of mind or a spiritual disposition that is able to comprehend the truth. Or he is praying for a more full measure of the spirit of God, whom he here calls the spirit of wisdom to be given to them. I come down on the ladder of those two. I realize that in most of our Bibles, the word spirit is not capitalized, where in other places it is. But that's a work of translation, not inspiration. The question might be raised, well, hasn't Paul already said, didn't he just say that they had been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise? Why would he then pray that his father in heaven, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ and the father of glory, would give to them the spirit of wisdom if they already had it? I guess we could point to ourselves and say, is it not right of us to express a desire That God would make the spirit more fully known in our own lives. It's one thing to know the doctrinal truth that I've been sealed with the spirit. And that's a great, tremendous truth when we understand it rightly. The spirit of God has come into my life as a believer. And I now have the seal of the Holy Spirit of God upon me. I am authentically saved, sealed by the spirit. I really and truly do belong to God through Christ. I'm sealed and nothing can take this sealing away from me. That's a great doctrinal truth, but how does it work its way out into my life? Everything that Paul prays here, he is praying that God would give more of what he's already given. That God would make them more aware and more able to fully understand what he's done. Again, they must have been completely overwhelmed by the first half of this chapter. And you can picture them in your mind as I can. When when one comes and opens the scroll and begins to read, their eyes get big, their mouth drops open. God has done all of these things for me. He chose me. Christ shed his blood for me. The Spirit has sealed me. 
We would be left saying what we rightly say. I can't understand the, all of this. How can I even begin to fathom the greatness of what God has done for me in Christ that had his own good pleasure? Well, then enter the Apostle Paul. And he begins to pray. Lord, open their understanding to see this more clearly, to see it more fully. Would you give them more of the spirit of wisdom? What might this look like? Can we ask that question? Is that a fair question? And one that we can answer with no fear? What would it look like if the Lord gave believers more of his spirit? Sometimes in answering the question, it's, it's helpful to start in the negative, right? It would, it would call forth no abuses of the Spirit. No one would be slain in the Spirit. There would be no second blessing. There would be no uncontrollable exuberance. You've seen the videos of the just all out, I don't, I don't even know what to call it. I don't have a word for it. Madness, perhaps. And that's how some would say that the Spirit of God has come upon them. But if we were to, if we were to answer this question, what would it look like if, if the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, if he was to really give us more of his Spirit, what would it look like? I suppose that we would be more humble. We would be more understanding. We would be more ready and willing to forgive and forbear. We would have more love for Christ, more love for one another, more love for the things of God and the things of Christ. We would have more of an appetite for his word. We wouldn't be nearly as lethargic and unconcerned about the lost masses of humanity around us. We would have a higher view of the Lord's day, of the Lord's church, a greater understanding of the hope that we have, a more willingness to suffer, etc., etc. All of these things would be a real answer if the Lord were to give us more of his spirit. But how often more of the spirit is counterfeited and abused? Looks nothing like what we see on the pages of Scripture. It looks like the God of order has lost all any concern for order. If the Lord were to give us more of His Spirit, then all we have to do is go to Galatians 5. There would be the fruit of the Spirit. There would be more love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things would be exhibited more greatly in our life if the Lord were to open the store of heaven and give us more of His Spirit. Is that what you desire? Would you dare pray this for yourself? Would you dare pray this for one another? Would you dare pray this for our church? Would you dare pray it for me? That the Lord would give us more of the spirit of wisdom and revelation. To know more. The, the word revelation here means an unveiling, an opening, a disclosing. 
I'm not sure we rightly understand the word anymore because when we think about the book of Revelation, what do we think about? Concealing. Mystery. When it is in actuality a revelation, a making known of Jesus Christ. Made known to John on the Isle of Patmos because he was there for the word of his testimony concerning Christ. So back to Paul's prayer that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you in increasing measure. I think we can add that to help understand the spirit of wisdom and revelation. When you read the New Testament, you come across passages where the author chastises Christians because of their immaturity. You need milk and not solid food. Do we not see from those such passages that perpetual immaturity is an affront in the sight of God? Think about everything he has made known in these first 14 verses. Wouldn't we want to know as much about those things as we could possibly handle? That's what Paul's praying for. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, would you give this to them? The spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit, I'll remind you, Jesus said is going to come and he is going to lead and guide us into all truth. That's why he is referred to in the scriptures in a couple of places as the spirit of truth. The imagery of the wording that is used in the New Testament to to refer to the spirit is one who comes alongside to comfort One who comes alongside to teach and instruct. This is what Paul is praying and asking the Father of glory to do for these fairly new converts. But you know what? The oldest saint is right in praying this. One of the words that we've looked at and will continue to look at because it comes up so often in this letter is the word Riches. We don't have to go too much further to run across it again. He speaks in verse 18 of the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. Whatever amount of knowledge we hold right now. Whatever amount of understanding or wisdom that we have right now. There is so much more that the Lord could give. So much more that he could show. So much more that he could reveal. So much more about Christ that we could know. And cause us to love him more greatly. Cause us to stand in admiration and reverence of him more than we currently do. Is it not right that we take this prayer of Paul, adopt it and make it our own? O oh God of my Savior, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would you give me more of the spirit of wisdom and revelation? And notice how specific this is in the knowledge of him. I suppose we could ask the question, who is being referred to here 
at the end of verse 17, him. It's either Christ or the Father. I think it's the Father. As we have our wisdom and revelation increased, that is specifically as our knowledge of God goes up. We receive more. From beginning to end in your Bible, Genesis to Revelation, many ways we could describe it, but it's God in various ways, types, shadows, wisdom, poetry, prophetical writings, epistles, psalms, all of these ways revealing himself. Making himself known. Paul goes on in verse 18. And says the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Our understanding here could be our heart. The seat of our emotions. Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. Why would he pray such a thing? Because previously we lived in such darkness. Remember the definition of these Ephesians, Ephesian Christians and really of us as well? Having no hope. Without God in the world and without Christ. Is it any wonder why Paul prays? Give them more light. Turn it up for them. Some of us live and are content to live with just a little bit of light. You know, as I'm sure some of you can relate, the older I get, the more light it takes for me to be able to see things. <laughs> and you can't always just reach over and turn up the light, can you? Sometimes you're just stuck in a, in a dim room. Our Christian spiritual life, we shouldn't be content to live in a dim, dimly lit room when we have a father of glory. The Father of glory allows himself even wants to be known. So don't content yourself with a candle. Don't content yourself with a candle when you could have so much more. Nothing about what Paul has said in the first 14 verses is being negated in this prayer. It's just a prayer asking, Lord, make it more fully known to their understanding. And that's where we'll end and pick up next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this prayer of Paul. We thank you for the way he teaches us to address you. We thank you for the great things that we can ask and expect of you, our great God. 
And so, Lord, we pray again as we begin that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory, would give to us, would grant more of the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. The eyes of our understanding would be more and more and more enlightened. Lord, we pray this so that we might more honor and glorify you, so that we might be more profitable servants, so that Jesus Christ would be more clearly portrayed among us as being Lord and Savior. We ask it all into his praise, honor and glory, and in his name. Amen.